We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I'm Cheney Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, Front and Center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always by my co-host Nick Filato. Tonight we're going to break down the New York Giants All-22 coaches film of their Week 8 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a game where they competed hard with arguably one of the NFL's best teams, definitely one of the NFC's best teams. And honestly, as you look back on this game, especially considering the down and distance when those two interceptions were thrown, specifically the last one because the Giants were in field goal range. I come away thinking the Giants should have won this game, if not for Daniel Jones, obviously. He was the reason they lost this game. Uh, the defense played phenomenal. Upon review of this film, and we'll get to that on the next show, we're going to break down the entire defense. There's a lot to talk about there. But really, when you think about that from a 30,000-foot view, and you take away the fact that this team is 1-7, they're out of the playoff hunt, now, not technically, because the NFC East is such an absolute joke. They're not specifically fully out of it mathematically. But with the losses in the NFC East, their tiebreaker's looking bad. And in general, I mean, even if they grind out a 6 or 7 win NFC East division win, I'm not too thrilled about that personally. That's not something that I think is that great. But hopefully they can do it because it might help them build to the future. But the point is, this roster, this team, 
does give you the feel when you watch games like this one specifically and the Rams and the Steelers, when you throw the tape on from those three specific games. And even more, if you want, throw in the Bears game because you know what? The Bears may not look pretty, but they have won a lot of football games. They're the type of team the Giants aspire to be. And you realize this team is headed in the right direction, at least in my mind, I start to think about that in a lot of ways. Now, there's one way I'm not sure they're headed in the right direction. That's quarterback. We're going to have a lot about that on the show tonight. But really, when you watch this Bucks game, I came away extremely enthused specifically about their line play, their trench play. What have we said from the start of this, the in, inception of this big blue banter podcast? It's that we believe in three things lead to winning football in the NFL. Trench play on the offensive side of the ball, the offensive line, which we value a little higher than the defensive line, but also trench play on the defensive side of the ball and the defensive line and then of course the quarterback play quarterback play is a must in the nfl these days you need a quarterback that'll be win you can find scenarios where you get a ryan Tannehill, but in the end ultimately the best quarterbacks pull ahead you look at who has won the last 20 super bowls patrick mahomes tons of tom brady a couple of eli mannings in there some rogers it's really ben roethlisberger's it's the best of the best peyton manning so ultimately those are the three things we strive for we want this team and honestly I do give Gettleman a little bit of credit when I watch a game like this and when I watch the stops that the defensive line made, and especially that third and one toward the end of the game that forced the Bucks to kick a field goal that gave the Giants a chance to drive down the field. I give him credit for that. I think it took a lot to get there. He's obviously invested a lot, but ultimately they're really physical and tough on the defensive line, and it shows in a game like this. And then on the flip side, I thought this was the best game for the offensive line that I've seen the entire season with the exception of maybe the Steelers, but I'm giving this a better grade than the Steelers because of what happened in the run game. So I want to start there, Nick, because we're going to talk about a lot. I want to start with the offensive line. I want to get your overall takeaway from what you saw on film from the offensive line. It was arguably Andrew Thomas's best game other than maybe that Pittsburgh game. If we're going to go through all the guys, I think Nick Gates had a really good game, especially pulling into space, something that we've kind of talked about before in the past. We've seen him do it on double pullers along with Kevin Zeitler or Will Hernandez, and he does an excellent job locating second-level defenders, whether it be cornerbacks outside, outside linebackers, defensive backs, and he does just a great job eliminating them from the play. And that's a hard thing to do when you're 300-plus pounds, to pull, have the athletic ability to locate, and then have the wherewithal to utilize the right angle to locate that person and totally have them not be a factor in that rushing play. He did that, what, on two plays and excellently in this game. So I thought Nick Gates played well from that standpoint in the rushing game. In the passing game, I think it was a little bit difficult having Shane Lemieux next to him, but I still think he was solid. I think he's definitely somebody that I'm coming around on a little bit more have, I guess, concerns, I guess you could say, and which I've articulated on this podcast several times about his strength, especially going up against nose. Kevin Zeitler is a stud. There's no other way to really break it down. There really isn't. Kevin Zeitler is good as a run blocker. He's good as a pass blocker. And Cam Fleming, I think, is not good. But I thought Matt Parrott, who played 24 snaps, looked really solid in those 24 snaps. But I want to go back to Shane Lemieux a little bit. Shane Lemieux, as a run blocker, he was solid. I thought he did a good job using his strength in in a phone booth. I thought he did really good down blocking on those power gap kind of concepts. Now, I think his short arms will always be a limitation. I'm coming out with an article that should drop tomorrow on Big Blue View. It's a, a full film study of Shane Lemieux and how he performed in this game in every facet, really. Run, pass, all those kind of things. And Pro Football Focus had him graded really comically bad as a pass blocker. I don't know if you saw that. It was like a 12 rating, Dan. It, it, Everyone's seen that so it, far, it, yeah. it, it was terrible. I think it might be a little harsh, but there were some glaring mistakes 
by Shane Lemieux from the mental side of things, from the athletic side of things. I don't think he's necessarily ever going to be somebody who's going to climb to the second level and be excellent at locating linebackers. He was going up against really quick linebackers in this game, and Devin White, Levante, David. The start wasn't great for Lemieux, I guess you could say. I think he was the weak point, but I still think the line in general, the unit in general, was able to kind of overcome that. And I'm not going to sit here and knock Lemieux and say that he stinks or anything like that. He's going up against a Todd Bowles coach defense with absolute studs on it. He struggled with William Golston because William Golston has incredibly long arms and he's incredibly long, and I think that's always going to be a struggle for him. I thought he still had some reps, which you can see in the article, that he did a good job kind of countering and using active hands to position himself well while pass blocking and resetting himself once making mistakes because he did make quite a bit of mistakes as a pass blocker. I don't know if you saw the same thing. Yeah, there's a lot to break down there. So that was a nice, I would say, overview of everything. But I think it's we should do our justice of really breaking down each player in depth because that's kind of the game that they called for, in my opinion. This, is, this was a big, big game in my mind for the offensive line. Um, and I think you're spot on here. It's kind of funny. We'll start there. We'll start with the last one you brought up, Shane Lemieux. So just to be clear, Pro Football Focus gave him a 12.1 pass block grade, 34.1 overall. It's still comically bad. Um, And I think this is a great example of what you can get and what you can take away from studying the All-22 film because on broadcast, it really didn't look as bad as it looked as you kind of break it all down. And this is something that, you know, I can learn from somebody like you, Nick, who has had experience obviously at the scouting academy and learning exactly what to look for and what to key in on when focusing on offensive linemen and as you broke it down for me I kind of look back and I say look now I'm looking for these things and I'm seeing these things a little bit more with somebody like Shane Lemieux and that's fine because on first broadcast I'm like did they really miss Will Hernandez was there any difference at all without Will Hernandez besides the fact that maybe Andrew Thomas had his best game of the season which are two totally unrelated things by the way just to be clear because I know some people have kind of conflated the two on Twitter. Andrew Thomas did not have his best or second best, depending on what you want to call his best, this or the Steelers game. I think it's really, really close. I think they were both really good games for Thomas. And what if he could play like he played against the Steelers and Bucks the rest of his career, that's fine. I mean, it's still not going to be Tristan Wirfs. They're still not going to have got this pick right in my mind, almost definitely. Unfortunately, that's my personal opinion. Um, we'll have to see. Uh, maybe he can be better than Wills and Becton. I'm not sure Wirfs has any chance at this point. But having said that, if he can play like this the rest of his career, the Giants are fine. Like, all good. You can put this guy in. But back to Lemieux for a second, I think you start to notice, and this is not to say that really they were getting so much better play from Will Hernandez. I'm very low on Hernandez, personally. I just, I don't get it with him. I don't really understand why he's not good. He should be so much better. But as far as breaking it down a little bit more in depth, you see some of the things that Lemieux does that really more so in pass protection, I think, than run blocking because it's not as evident there, especially because at the end of the game, the Giants really started to get make room on the ground. I mean, before that Jones interception to Tate, um, the one where he escapes the pocket right for really no reason at all and then throws late to Tate, they were in second and five. They were ahead of the chains in field goal range because they were running the ball really well. They had a first and 10 run on an obvious rundown, and the line just cleared a five-yard hole there. And that was the type of stuff you saw at the end of the game. I mean, you said it best while watching the game. Is this offensive line kind of wearing down that Bucks interior defensive front? And the answer was yes. We saw, I, I think, at least in my mind, even rewatching an All-22. Do you agree with that? I would. They were wearing them down. And I do think Lemieux, even, the young yeah. kid, he uh, did a good job with the mental side of things in the run game in terms of combo blocks. So what 
obviously what you want to do when you're an offensive line, you want to get double teams, and then you want to climb off leverage to the linebacker. And these linebackers are quick to diagnose and quick to blitz off their run keys, quick to shoot their gaps, I should say. And Lemieux, there were a couple reps where he would combo with Andrew Thomas, look, C45 coming right at him, quickly come off of that, flip his hips towards 45, and then just pin 45 up against Nick Gates. That was, there was one rep where he did that excellently. So there were times, and I don't want to just sit here and knock Lemieux. I just think that he was the worst yeah. offensive lineman out there, but they still overcame it as a unit, in, in my opinion. I thought Andrew Thomas, one play in the second quarter, first and 10 with 12-11 left, he gets beaten inside, but I think this is important because usually... On these reps, we've seen Andrew Thomas's inside leg come up and he wasn't able to re-anchor himself. But on this play, he's engaged by, I want to say it's Nadamakan Sue, but I'm not 100% sure on that. And he gets beat inside, but he's able to just get enough of him to hold him off yep. just long enough for Daniel Jones to throw the football. Now, if that play doesn't happen, he doesn't get beat inside, possibly Daniel Jones throws a better ball there. You, you can make that argument. I can understand that argument. But We've seen Andrew Thomas get blown apart on this play several mm-hmm. times all year, and he doesn't here. He's able to have a little bit of wherewithal to hold up, and I think there's some encouraging signs there, but the technique still needs to be cleaned up. But that was one of his only like really glaring negative reps. Well, at the end of the game, he had the one. Yes, in the one where he got yeah. beat around the edge, yes. The one he did have one where he got beat around the edge. But that besides those two, really, those are really the only things you can find on tape that would say, okay, this is the old bad Andrew Thomas. This wasn't a game for the old bad Andrew Thomas. And as far as that pass goes, I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of pressure, but Jones needs to put a better ball out there. Absolutely. This is just, he was so off placement-wise the entire game. We'll get into that later. We're going to get into that. But I want to stick on the offensive line because there's a few things you said there that I want to kind of unpack and dive a little bit deeper into. So aside from Shane Lemieux, you mentioned how Pert started to play a much bigger role, especially at right tackle. I actually saw a couple plays early on where Cam Fleming did a good job in the run game. I still think he kind of has some decent reps there, and you've talked about that before, and we both kind of agree with that. It's a passing game where he's just a total disaster, Um, and obviously at this point, I think we, or at least I, I, I'm curious what you think. At this point, I'm pretty set and sure that I think at this point, I would just fully bench Cam Fleming for Pert. The Giants already said that's not going to be the case. They're going to have a three-man rotation at tackle. But at this point, I I think you can he can he can learn Pert. He can grow from some of the early mistakes. But ultimately, he had a really good game out there. I agree with you, but I see where the Giants are coming from. You don't want to put too many rookies on their offensive line mm-hmm. with a young quarterback who's kind of struggling. And that's yes. that's the Giants' mindset. That's why they want Cam Fleming out there. Honestly, just going off the tape, and I know it's a limited sample size, but Matt Parrott looks significantly better than Cam Fleming in pass protection. I don't think there's any argument with that. In the run game, I do think Cam Fleming flashes, and he puts Mm -hmm. himself in good position. He's a gigantic body, and he can move people pretty well. Parrott is coming along there. I don't think he's a total liability in that department. So as of right now, what they're doing doesn't necessarily bother me. The fact that they are kind of splitting the reps up and they're kind of picking and choosing when they're using them, as long as it doesn't affect the cohesiveness of the offensive line, which I haven't necessarily seen. Yeah. And let's be honest, the cohesiveness of this offensive line never really was all that great, despite the fact so that this they... this game, it looked good. No, yeah, this game, it did. It really weirdly looked great, this game, honestly. Yeah. Oh, yes, but I'm talking about kind of historically yeah. the last couple of years, and yep. especially through some of the earlier games this yes. season. But I, So I'm not, I'm not too upset with what they're doing. I hope eventually... Parrott and Thomas will be more comfortable, more up to speed, and they'll trust putting those guys out there and kind of phasing Cam Fleming out. But that's the reason they're not doing it right now, man, especially without Will Hernandez. You can't – it's – it's – crazy enough to start Andrew like your entire left side is rookies and your center is a first year center who's never played center before right so and then if you had your right tackle I mean that's just a lot of protection issues we saw Shane Lemieux make a a pretty glaring mistake on the 
on the Devin White sack when he mm-hmm. came in. Deion Lewis was uh, supposed to take that outside blitzer. Shane Lemieux was supposed to realize that it was a coffeehouse stunt. Jeff Schwartz does a really good job talking about this on Twitter. He doesn't realize that it was the coffeehouse stunt, so he goes and he tries to take over. He tries to take that blitzer up, which Deion Lewis, that was Deion Lewis's responsibility, leaving Nick Gates, who was supposed to pick up Devin White, having to engage that, I want to say it was a three technique or a two eye technique, but that was supposed to be Shane Lemieux taking him. Right. Shane Lemieux just wasn't in position, didn't see it, and that led to that sack that knocked the Giants out of the field goal range. And when you talk about the coffee, break down what you mean by the coffee house stunt. Yeah, well, on that specific stunt, he faked going. He faked dropping in the coverage. Remember back in 2007, the Super Bowl? Kavika Mitchell, what did he do to fool Tom Brady that one time? He peppered the A-gap and then Yeah, he was, he was saying like he was going to blitz, and then right at the snap, you turn your shoulders like you're dropping into coverage. So the offensive line, who's accounting for you pre-snap, goes, oh, homeboy's dropping into coverage. I can go and help out other places. Yes. Now, instead, you fake like you're dropping, and then once the gap parts because everybody's going to help out for loopers and stunts and all those other things that are going on on a defensive line, you shoot that gap and that's what happened with Devin White and it was on Deion Lewis to go pick up that blitzer on the far end and it's on Shane Lemieux and Nick Gates to recognize that interior blitz Nick Gates recognized that you can see it on the all 22 he's looking at it but he's already engaged with this guy and she's found Shane Lemieux to take that guy off of Gates it's supposed to be a smooth transition that did not happen why do they call it the coffee house I'm not actually <laughs> I'm not actually 100% sure but if you guys are curious look up coffee house stunt and a fr- friend of ours Brandon Thorne who does an excellent job breaking down offensive line defensive line everything in the trenches did a whole article for usa football on the coffee ha- coffee house stunt. man my new jersey accent just came out there like crazy but on the coffee house stunt and if you guys really want to uh, go check that out maybe they have the origin of why it's called that yeah well that is actually the correct way to pronounce coffee so anyone who tells you otherwise is just incorrect yeah we have we have east coast bias over here that's <laughs> 100 percent east coast bias is correct bias actually it's not really bias if it's correct but as far as Brandon Thorne goes, he, in my mind, is the best evaluator of the offensive line, at least in the media. Um, obviously, there could be there's obviously better offensive line evaluators working for teams. Another scouting academy guy. Another scouting academy guy. And just to give you guys a little tidbit into that, he has Tristan Wirfs as the best right tackle in football. Not the best rookie, the best right tackle in football this year. So that's unfortunate for the Giants. He looked awesome in this game, but it is what it is. Like I said, if Andrew Thomas can at least be solid, then fine. Like that's at least it's not another Flowers. It's not another Eli Apple. It's not another, I don't know. He, he looked great in this game. I, I want to pitch you a question. How do you think if a football game were to go down, this is a little off topic, the Giants offensive line would do against the Giants pass rushers right now? That's a great question. Right? Um, and I think a lot of what you said also is is true because okay against the Giants pass rushers they probably it feels like they do okay because the Giants really win in their pass rush just by either sending extra guys or these these looping stunts with Leonard Williams to get pressure absolute beast doing who's having a beast season and now with a guy and I don't want to I don't want to spoil too much the podcast because there's going to be there's a couple guys who wear 40 who I liked you to that they used in the pass rush game and I want to talk about but we'll get there who wear the 40s in the 40s I say but that's a great question. How would the Giants' pass rush do? Because the Giants, I mean, they get pressure when Patrick Graham schemes pressure for the most part, um, or when Leonard Williams makes a play. Um, <laughs> so essentially, they don't have much. They don't have much in the one-on-one pass I, rush game. I will say this, and I don't want to spoil anything for the yeah. team, but there were so many reps where Tom Brady's just sitting back there, and you oh, just yeah. see these 
unathletic guys try to gain the it's edge crazy. and just get tossed on the ground and you're yeah. just like oh jeez I and love you Kyler Fackrell and I think he's such an underrated player but that's just not his game yeah he's you know? a to- he's a solid player to have on your defense but yeah. you don't really want him trying to win one-on-one edge battles and especially if you're going up against Tristan Wirfs who's like Brandon said at least in his mind from what he's seen on film the best right tackle in football and then Donovan Smith on the other side isn't the best this. left tackle but he had yeah. a good game yeah. <laughs> everybody looks good against the Giants edges apparently <laughs> so it is what it is there they're gonna obviously upgrade edge talent at at some point they didn't really have the opportunity in my mind chase young was the only edge i thought worth taking in the second round me and nick tossed around the idea of guys like julian aquara i would rather have mckinney every day of the week as a draft pick i would never consider going uh, aquara over mckinney and there were a couple other guys that we thought about in the middle rounds but i i don't think they really missed anything there it was a really bad edge class and the way they're you know we'll, we'll get into all this next yeah, podcast yeah we'll, yeah, we'll get yeah. into that on the defense podcast let's stick yeah. to the offensive line though because i think you brought up a great point as far as why pert might not be playing 100% of the snaps and if you look at last season when Eli Manning came in for Daniel Jones when he was injured you saw much better offensive line play and that's credit to Eli Manning because he does an excellent job of helping the protections and adjusting the protections before the snap and Jones is getting better at that I really believe from what I've seen especially when you watch a game like this where the offensive line plays so well Jones is definitely getting better at that but he's still nowhere near where Eli was or where he needs to be so if you throw another rookie in I completely agree with you that could make that task more difficult but let's oh yeah go ahead yeah but absolutely I mean I think it was indicative in the Philadelphia game you saw him and Golden Tate communicating on the touchdown pass to Golden Tate right because he was saying hey there's going to be a blitz coming and Golden Tate looks at him do you want me to run hot do you want me to run a slant do you think this guy no I don't think this is happening I'm going to run my on my fade and Jones helped set that protection was in communication with his wide receivers and that's what you're seeing all the time pre-snap that's why you see the the play clock go down to zero sometimes it's because mm-hmm. there's so many different things there's so much stuff you're trying to diagnose and digest and as a quarterback you have to if you do have a young offensive line that can't really necessarily do it themselves you have to account for every dangerous defender and that's not as easy as it sounds when these guys are moving like crazy and they're changing where they where they're rushing from and it's something that Daniel Jones is going to struggle with something that I mean week one and two last year with Eli Manning against uh, Dallas and Buffalo, the offensive line, we weren't really complaining about the offensive right. line that much. We were complaining about the offense. No, we, without a doubt. I mean, the yeah. offense yes. we were complaining about. but The offensive line, not necessarily. but And then, obviously, week three, we had Daniel Jones' magic, and it was like we were riding a little bit of high with beating uh, the Washington, Washington I'm going to say, and Tampa Bay. But then you saw with Mike, Mike Zimmer against Minnesota, it was just ridiculous out scheming of the offensive yes. line the offensive line was and i know it was a good defense at the time but they were being out coached and out schemed and it was very evident that they were taking advantage of a of a younger offense and good to give credit where credit's due i still think mike zimmer has his entire fact i still think mike zimmer's throwing 100 miles per hour if you look at the stats this year with all the injuries the vikings have had on defense mm. which includes a young secondary that's completely beat up all their pass rushers are injured or gone and yet they have one of the best third-down defenses and red-down zone defenses in the entire NFL. That's Mike Zimmer. He's a great coach. He's one of, if not the best defensive court defensive minds in the NFL right yes. now. Um, so just just to say, like that is what it is. Like I didn't expect Jones as a rookie, but you're right. It's a great point overall. You can see the difference there. Um, but I want to unpack a few more things on this offensive line individual. So let's start with what you said about Kevin Zeitler, who you referred to as an absolute stud. And I completely agree with you. And I think that with Zeitler, a lot gets lost on Giants Twitter and in general with the overall 30,000-foot view discussion of him. At the trade deadline, there was a lot of talk about trading him 
He has, I think, something like a 13 or $14 million cap hit next year, so I want to unpack all of that. I think when you just look at the broadcast angle or just consider the Giants' offensive line or look at some grade or whatever it may be, you might think that he's just an average or solid offensive lineman, but that's not true. While playing next to Cameron Fellman and Nick Gates, which is not helpful for any right guard, he's a stud. He's an absolute stud both in the pass and run game. He's one of the best offensive linemen I've evaluated since I started following the Giants. I swear to God on this. Nick, I know you just said it, so you probably agree with me too. To me, this is not someone I would even consider trading. There's no... What what have we said the entire time? There's nothing more important than getting quarterback, offensive line, and defense right now. I have changed my mind a bit on how to build a defense over time. I now personally believe it's more pass coverage than pass rush. You see what the Miami Dolphins are doing, who are now one of the five, four, five, three, three, four, five best defense in the NFL, at least right now. And the reason is that when they have Byron Jones and um, forgetting the other and Xavier Howard healthy. No one can throw on them. And what they did against the Rams was unbelievable. They just pushed everything up and said, Jared Goff, we're going to just blitz the hell out of you. We're going to send extra guys. We're going to play man on the outside with these two corners. You're screwed. There's nothing you can do to beat that when you have two great outside corners. And the Giants have one great outside corner. I personally believe that their clearest path, and especially when you have a guy like Patrick Graham who can scheme up pressure, and that goes for the Baltimore Ravens, one of the best pass defense in the NFL. The Dolphins, I'm going to mention this, all these kind of Patriots ways. The Patriots, obviously not this year, so they got screwed by all the opt-outs, and they're just not the same defense, but the Patriots of 2019. So that's a whole nother thing, but as far as the offensive line goes, why in the world would you trade your best offensive lineman, the only good offensive lineman that you really have, the only really good one, at least playing right now, Obviously, we hope that that will change with guys like Andrew Thomas and Matt Pert, potentially maybe even Nick Gates. Who knows there? I'm not going to include Hernandez in that. That's another story. But why would you trade your best offensive lineman who you could have at 30 years old or 31 years old next year, which is not old in offensive line years. It's simply not old for $14 million. That's where you want to spend your cap, by the way. You want to spend your cap on the—you want—what if we said offensive line, quarterback, defensive line maybe, or the trenches? I don't know there. I'm kind of— all over the place now on where I would build my defense out. But the two things I know I would do is build, invest in offensive line and quarterback position, invest my assets there. So with that said, it was not even, it was a no brainer for me. I would have never traded Zeitler deadline. I'm happy he wasn't traded. I think if you just traded him and threw Lemieux in, this line would look terrible. It would be a terrible transition from <laughs> Zeitler to Lemieux. I think we know that. And I, you could also throw out starting Matt Perry at that point. Yeah, right. You want to put Lemieux, Pert, and Gates on the right side of your line? It's a disaster. I'm it's telling making. you, coaches are talking about that. That is a big yeah. talking point in coaching. You need experience at mm-hmm. specific units. You need experience on the offensive line. I was never on the team trade Kevin Zeitler. Yep. Let's see Shane Lemieux you play i think shane lemieux you let him develop you get him in situations like this when it warrants see how he does and then further develop him throughout the season but he's not a player right now that you want to rely on no. he's not a player that should be starting and he's not a player i want to rely on in 2021 and i don't want to rely on having to if they get rid of zeitler having to find a new right guard for 2021 it's enough stop trying to add more positions to find on the <laughs> offensive line and now like they might already have to add a center next season we don't know like we me and nick have said there's a lot we're starting to like about gates but we also have our reservations we think the position can be upgraded hopefully they can go into 2021 with pert and thomas at the tackles i don't know what they're going to do at left guard but they don't want to add another right another position that they already have their best player it makes no sense to me and i know a lot of people this offseason are going to be like him. he's over 30 we're a rebuilding team we need the cap no you don't need the cap spend the cap on players like this that's how it goes and if you watch the all 22 when you break it down you see why he's their best offensive lineman and why he's still one of the best guards in the nfl i know he might not have those grades on pro football focus while playing next to cam fleming 
a rookie in Matt Pert or Nick Gates learning in the center position. But when you watch him in the run game specifically, he's a big reason they had some of their biggest holes in the run game. And in the pass game, he just doesn't make mistakes. Just doesn't. I mean, there are, what, a handful of plays that you can remember out of all the plays this year where it's like, oh, Kevin Zeitler kind of could have done that better. or Like, I mean, kind of could have done that better, maybe a little bit of a stretch, but where you're like, oh, man, he lost that. Like, he, yeah, he, more so that. He yeah. doesn't really lose. He's always in good position in the run game. He's always executing his assignments as a pass protector, like we said. I mean, I just, I don't know why we would try to get rid of that. And as you've already said, man, he's he's not old. Yeah. It's yeah. not, that's not old. The only reason we would that people even consider getting rid of him is this just uh, this mindset that some fans have. Like, if you're a rebuilding team, you cannot afford to have anybody over 30 making X amount of money. No, no, no. That's not how this works. That's not how roster building works. You don't just dump every single asset you can have because they're over a certain age and they make a certain amount of money. If he's one of your better players and he plays a position that has longevity— and all the study, I mean, you could just look at Andrew Whitworth still playing unbelievable left tackle for the Rams at like 37 years old or whatever it is. A guy I wanted the Giants to sign like back when they signed Brandon Marshall and he wanted to come to New York. It's just, you don't get rid of a guy like Kevin Zeitler in my mind. I hope they're not considering it for next year. I, I mean, I hope they've had some discussions with him behind doors like, look, we see what you're doing on tape. We want you in our future plans, at least, you know, through, through this contract at the very minimum. That'd be wise, and you would imagine that Joe Judge would have that kind of mindset, yeah. and Dave Gettleman, the person who traded for Kevin Zeitler, would also have that mindset if Dave Gettleman is retained. Yep. Completely agree with you, but um, that I don't want to get into the Gettleman thing right <laughs> now. That's for another time. I don't think they can honestly afford to look us in the mirror and retain him, but... It is what it is. I will give him his due credit. When you watch a game like this and you see that defensive interior play the way they do and they're so physical and they're so good at the point of attack and they were a big reason. You want to know why this defense is able to compete against a team like the Bucks, who really are pretty old school in the sense that they like to run the ball a lot on early downs. They wanted to establish the run quote-unquote. It's Bruce Arians' ball. He likes to do run-run play action shots and that doesn't work against the Giants front. It just doesn't work. It put the it put the Bucks in a lot of third and second and long situations. And then when they got in those third and shorts, especially the, the one at the end of the game, you just see that I, I I think the Giants might have honestly one of the best, if not the best, third and short defenses in the entire NFL. It's really and truly if you look back, I'd lo- maybe one day I'll do some charting on this to see how they performed this season and last, but specifically this season because I believe they've taken a jump there in third and short situations and it's just there's nowhere to go when they stack those three big boys 97 94 99 it's just so hard to move that move the ball in the run game oh absolutely i mean those big boys when they're stacked in the a gap the b gap and they're just really tight in a bare front or something yes. like that they spill everything outside and that's where you have jabril peppers who's excellent at this he made a big play on that third and one that you were referring to you have blake martinez who's also excellent at kind of cleaning up those kind of plays stopping the offense at the line of scrimmage or behind the line of scrimmage or for a minimum game so man but I, let's save that for the defensive podcast yeah, yeah, i don't want to yeah. dive too yeah, deep into that that's yeah. a play i wanted to break down because um, it was a big one but let's go back to the offense because before we wrap up i think what you said on gates is kind of where we can go with that for now i think as we see more of gates and we start to see some of the nasty stuff he does in space which is really where in my opinion he's at his best in the run game as well where he gets that second level better than i really expected him to be able to you start to get more confident like we've said kind of in the past and we continue to say that this is a player we can probably roll into 2021 with and not feel like he's a total liability um but lastly i want to talk about the main guy here and that's andrew thomas who we 
both agree had either his best or second best game but I think it's really interesting about Thomas and you mentioned this before um what he did with his inside foot to anchor down and to not lift that inside foot on the inside moves I think that's a credit and a testament to the coaching they had extra time I think Bobby Skinner actually mentioned this to me um from Talking Giants, Bobby Skinner, who's a, another great analyst for the Giants, um, friend of the show, he mentioned to me that they had extra time because of the Monday night game to kind of work with him. And that might have been the case with Colombo working specifically and individually with Andrew Thomas. But I think this is good for a lot of reasons. I think it's good because it shows that the Giants might have something in Colombo as an offensive line coach. Can you remember any time over the Hal Hunter years or even before that where we saw this kind of improvement? immediately from coaching um with eric flowers or any of their other young offensive line prospects i mean can you remember any time where even a young offensive line prospect was able to kind of and we'll see if this continues through games obviously it's one game sample size of him kind of improving on that inside move but having said that if it does continue it shows that he is the type of talent and player who can adjust to coaching um and so i thought that was really interesting and really good long term for the giants I would agree, and there were quite a few reps in this game. If you focus solely on Andrew Thomas, you're like, wow, that's that's the kind of player that you're hoping that you get. Now, I think it comes down right now to consistency because there were two or three really bad reps, I would say, where it was somewhat, I wouldn't say it was as bad as what we've seen over the last several weeks, but man, there were a couple plays where he had to do some unique things because Jason Garrett was really creative with some of his play calls doing like half boot rollout throwback kind of passes where Thomas would have to position himself in some unique ways. And he did that pretty well. And I was pretty surprised, man. That requires a lot of footwork, a lot of understanding of angles. And he was able to do that. Plus, obviously, the strength while engaged, strength through contact and all those things. There were a couple reps where he would get JPP up the arc and he would just get his hands inside and just move his feet smoothly and just kind of be that dancing bear we're hoping that he'll be. Right. You saw that a couple of times in this game. It actually gave me a pretty solid glimmer of hope for Andrew Thomas, but now it needs to be consistent. We need to see it week in and week out. We need to mitigate the mistakes for this player. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think really where Andrew Thomas is at his best is when he's kind of blocking down. And this was the case, I think, at Georgia. This was the case against the Steelers on a rep or two, and this was the case in this game. And when he's blocking down, he is a load in the run game, and he really helped the Giants get some of their biggest games in the run game with that style of blocking. And I think the Giants see that, and I think they're going to try to utilize that to their advantage by having more plays where that's his run responsibility. Yeah, and those kind of plays too. So basically when you block down, you're going to need to have a defender shaded inside or a defender shaded on the outside shoulder at a three technique position on the guard and you run a power gap concept to his side to the left side so you can bring Caden Smith from the right side to be one of the puller you could pull the backside guard Kevin Zeitler you could run that counter play that the Giants ran a couple times with Alfred Morris in this game right around the edge you have Andrew Thomas blocked down aggressively you can have a tight end on the edge but with these Giants and they're blocking with the tight ends it's not exactly great although I will say in this game when they were asked to it wasn't as bad other than Levine Toilolo, who I think, ironically enough, probably had the worst game as a blocker out of the three tight ends. I thought there were a couple reps, especially Caden Smith, where I was like, okay, Caden Smith, that's actually pretty damn solid right there. But uh, the tight ends, they're not necessarily reliable. And that's one thing, I just to go off on a little tangent, I wonder how the San Francisco 49ers are going to be without George Kittle. I think he's such a pivotal yep. part to their and rushing attack. So is attack. Gronk to the Bucks rushing oh, attack. We saw that firsthand. Yep. Look at Gronk. Some of the, and again, he's not going up it's against so the best. It's so hard to find these guys, man. Oh, I mean, dude, the, so the Giants can never get another t- a two-way tight end like they had with Kevin Boss. That was really the last time they had it. They had it one season with Bennett. 
and they had it with Kevin Boss. Mm-hmm. I don't think they've had it since, or they haven't had it in my mind really ever, really, besides that. As I, in the time I've been a fan, obviously the Mark Navarro. I mean, let's not go crazy here. It's he was the best way. they've ever had as a two-way tight end, but that's such a rare breed in the NFL. It's kind of like the deep half safety we talked about during draft season. They're so rare, and they make such an incredible impact on wins and losses in my mind. When you can put a tight end who can hold and maintain them. There were, I mean, there were, I have two two times in my notes where Evan Ingram blew a run play again just by, and that's not his fault. He doesn't have the frame for it. He really doesn't, but there was one play, and one of them specifically, where Caden Smith had a really awesome block, and this play was going to be a huge one. It was a huge hole on the left side and Caden Smith completely drives 92 Vernon Golson a defensive lineman out of the play now it's a big ask for Evan Ingram he's the last guy in the edge and he has to block maintain his block on JPP but with this block that Caden Smith puts and with the safety kind of with one of the safety playing high 31 and with the other safety 33 on the edge away from the play if he make, maintains this block, and again, Evan Ingram's never going to do it I'm not and it's a tough ask but when you have a guy like my whole point is when you have a guy like Gronk or George Kittle, they maintain that block, and then that hole is huge, and it's Alfred Morris, so it's probably not going for more than like six yards or seven yards, but if you have an actual NFL running back, someone who should be in the league right now, <laughs> running through this hole, this is potentially a touchdown if you cut it to the outside, or if you make one move to make this safety miss. There's literally one guy, because 45 takes is taken out of the play as he tries to shoot the A-gap, the other linebacker's on the other side of the field, and 92 is literally driven out of the play by 82. Now, if 82, Caden Smith can maintain this and be more consistent, and show like 10 reps of these a game then you kind of start to feel like he can do it I don't know if I'll ever become that kind of blocker I like him overall as a player but I don't know if he's ever that kind of blocker um but again that just goes to show like it's those little things like that's literally potentially a touchdown play if he makes if the running back can make one guy miss Albert Morris will never be that running back obviously but if the running back in Saquon Barkley (laughs) should be that running back next year when he's healthy to make that guy one guy miss and if that happens then it's a touchdown. So it's just just kind of to show what the value you can get from a two-way tight end. And Kane Smith had another rep, too, in the second quarter, second and four, 12.48 left in the game. For those of you following on Game Pass, it was a double-pulling play with a center and the play side guard, Kevin Zeitler, both pull. So it's a G-lead type of play. And on the edge, to the boundary, you have Levine Toilolo and Kane Smith. Kane Smith is outside, and Kane Smith literally takes the defender, and I can't see the number of the defender right now, and just holds him up at the point of attack and then drives him through and then they're both on the ground. Just eliminates the end man on the line of scrimmage. Yep. This was the play I talked about on the on the immediately after on the reaction podcast. This is one where I feel like Alfred Morris did absolutely nothing and just was great blocking and he just kind of ran a sweep that was purely blocked for him. Um, to me, this is just like not good running back stuff. And but, it's excellent block. But it's unbelievable blocking. And then Zeitler literally Caven Smith too. makes this play and he made the other play too. And I don't think I mentioned the timestamp for that one. So that one, the first one that I talked about where Caden Smith takes out Vernon Golson, that's first and 10 at the New York Giants 42 in the third quarter. Um, with 342 left if you want to tee it up on Game Pass. But again, these are two great reps by Smith that really have you excited. It's, it's William Goals. No. Oh, I, yeah, I, not Vernon Goals. Yeah. Sorry. Vernon Goals is like 45 Golson. right now. Yeah. <laughs> Vernon Golson is... <laughs> Is probably the only I Bringles. This is the first mention anyone's had of him on any football co- podcast in a long time. Dude's ears are ringing right now. Yes, he's going to become a fan of Big Blue Banter just because we're mentioning just him. Just because of the name mentioned. But anyway, let's transition to a few more things on the offensive side of the ball. We're going to want to talk skill players. We're going to want to talk Jason Garrett because I have some good things to say there that you might not expect. And then we're going to run a wrap up with Daniel Jones. But before we do any of that, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. 
You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire, with 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month. Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over three million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. All one word. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. All one word. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Football is back in full swing. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day every day. Head to Bet Online online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Okay, so let's start with Jason Garrett because I thought that this was Jason Garrett's best game by far as offensive coordinator of the Giants. Now, I will start by saying this. <laughs> this this game gave us so much validity to the argument that Nick has been trying to make all season with me and what we've gone back and forth on all the time, that part of the reason why Jason Garrett hasn't had or hasn't looked as good on film or on the broadcast or whatever you want to say with this play calling is because of what the defenses show. For some odd reason, Todd Bowles and the Bucks defense used a pretty similar game plan to the one they used against Daniel Jones last year with the single high safety. In my mind, you would have to be an absolute maniac to not just play two or three high safeties against Daniel Jones. He has not been able to figure it out so far in his career, in my mind. He did a little bit better with it in the game before where he was taking the whole shots. I'm trying to remember. It was the game before this one? Yeah, the Eagles game, where he was taking more shots in between the zone. And that was great. But in general, Jones has obviously not done a great job against zone coverage throughout his career, in my mind, in everyone's mind, by the stats and everything. But for some odd reason, Todd Bowles was playing a ton of single high and blitzing a ton. And quite honestly, if Daniel Jones just had his ball placement that he's had for pretty much every game of his career besides the Eagles game last year in the cold and a few plays of that Packers game, the Giant, he probably would have thrown for like 350 in this game. He missed multiple touchdowns in this game, literally legitimate touchdowns in this game, like four, maybe four. I, I'm trying to think. He missed two to Slayton, 
no, three to Slayton in my mind. Three touchdowns to Slayton. Maybe the third one that he could have just put in the inside wouldn't have been a touchdown, but at worst, it's a catch. But if he just throws that ball inside, it's a touchdown. Um, he missed the one slant and go to Shepard. That's a fourth touchdown. These are like 60-yard plays. And then he in the Ingram ball, I wouldn't call it a miss, the one that Ingram made a really good catch on, but that could have been another 50-yard play. So I have no idea why Todd Bowles played this team like this. I think that's just how he plays defense, no matter who the opponent is. This is just the type of coordinator he is, and it works. They're one of the best defense in the league. And it worked to rat and like you said like we've talked about and we'll get into this when we get into jones jones was rattled in this game he was quote unquote seeing ghosts i don't want to say it like that's <laughs> that's a joke because of the sam darnold line yeah. but in reality he was rattled out there there's a reason why his ball placement was the worst we've seen of his career it's because of the pressure and it's because he was pressured on a league high no quarterback had been pressured more this season when we say pressure that means sending more than four blitzers no quarterback had been ple- pressured more in a single game this season than Daniel Jones against the Bucks in week eight. That was the game plan. And it worked to that extent. But at the same time, man, like, it's so risky. I mean, you could just beat Jones by playing two or three high in my mind all the time. I mean, he's going to throw for 172 against those defense. He's done it every year, but he's done it every game this year. I'm sorry. But listen, he had chances because of Bowles, and I think Garrett did an excellent job taking advantage of what they showed and they were loving to sit on routes and we've been talking about this all year nick we want to see the receivers gas these routes when the corners are just stopping on routes those you know the button hooks that we seem to run all the time the spacing button hooks well they were running it the slant and go with shepherd the darius slayton ball that like literally it didn't even look like slayton did a double move there it was, it, just, blown coverage, yeah. it was just a blown coverage and i, I don't even know if i call that a blown coverage i think that they're the bucks were they the coaches were just telling the bucks like literally just sit on every route just sit this is it's like jamel dean on that play had some sort of brain fart. it was weird it was yeah. like in madden you know sometimes in madden yeah. when, you, when you when you accidentally like are over your corner and then the play's going on and you're just standing there because you're not reacting yeah, and That's, you didn't know you were you, you were yeah. highlighting the corner yeah. you're trying to get to the defensive <laughs> lineman in time you yeah. couldn't do it and then your corner just beat on the ground that's what it that, seemed that's like what, and we're talking about the one where jones obviously looked back to his right and threw the interception of shepherd if you're mm-hmm. thinking of the play but on that one yeah another one and they were gassing the routes to slant and go obviously the deep post to slayton where again like that wasn't the same thing because there was a single high safety somewhere near the play but again there was all this space out there vertically and i think garrett did an excellent job taking advantage i think he did an excellent job designing those throwback plays that was awesome those were creative plays what have i been saying this entire year i want a coordinator who's going to show motion and get a defense shifting all to the one way and then move the play back the other way i watch the kid i love right now zach wilson this quarterback at byu i'm just fucking and falling in full bloom love with when i watch this kid play it's also the coordinator there, and, in, and BYU has an unbelievable offensive line, which no one's talking about because they don't have five stars, but the coordinator there does an excellent job of exactly that, using motion and using misdirection to kind of get the defense flowing one way and have the play go back the entire opposite way. And Garrett did a great job of that in this game. So I really thought that Jason Garrett, with the exception of two play calls that I thought were unbelievably poor, the third and 11 screen to Deion Lewis, really bad situational play call, and the jet sweep at the, that last drive. That's obviously terrible stuff. With the exception of those two plays, he was lights out, and I really want to give him credit because I've been harsh on him this entire year, the entire Giants community on Twitter, the analysts, we've all been harsh on him. But I think when he finally should, and this goes back to what Nick has been saying the entire time, how the hell was he, what else was he going to do when teams were just playing that two high shell or that three high shell against the Giants? But when they didn't, when Todd Bowles played him aggressive, he fired back with an aggressive game plan. Yeah, and I think a lot of people were critical of Jason Garrett after the the Washington game. And I think there were like some play calls that you could 
you could kind of nitpick, and I think that would be fair, but I also believe that that was an excellent game plan against Washington. People were like, yeah, Chase Young and Montez Sweat, they didn't really do anything. It's like, yeah, the reason they didn't do anything was because of Jason Garrett's game plan. It's because of how conservative he was. It's because they ran the football and they got the ball out of Jones's hand quick. Hopefully they could do something similar against them this week. We're not 100% sure because Washington's going to be tracking on that. Now, the too high safety thing. Another reason, yes, Daniel Jones looked better in Pat Shermer's system last year, but I do, and I've said this before on the podcast, believe that this is kind of a product of not having Saquon Barkley. The fact that a lot of teams are playing too high safeties against them, and it's resulting in Jones struggling. Because whether it's healthy Saquon Barkley or not, having Saquon Barkley on the field, that's the guy you stop. If you were a defensive coordinator, the name you're circling is Saquon yeah. Barkley. And without Saquon Barkley, you're looking at Alfred Morris and Wayne Gallman, and I like Wayne Gallman, but he's not Saquon Barkley. That changes how you're going to play the Giants offense significantly. And I'm really curious, man, and I don't think I'm being ridiculous when I when I say this. This team could have a couple more wins if Saquon Barkley never gets injured. Uh... I think it changes the entire the entire outlook of how the the defense is playing Daniel Jones and I think that assists Daniel Jones a lot I think it's so tough to say I mean it's I think you're right probably even though it goes against everything I believe in about the running back position but I think you're right from the sense of not only does it change how the defenses play the Giants but he's good for one or two or three or four by now 67 yard touchdowns that's just who he is I mean he's done it his entire career and those are game-changing plays so I would agree with that ultimately and I know people are going to hate to hear this there are times where him not being in the game has actually helped the Giants because I think that he doesn't do an excellent job of reading his holes. It's just my personal opinion of watching Barkley for enough time, both at Penn State and with the Giants. He likes to bounce a lot of runs outside that he shouldn't. And I think at times they've been able to stay on track with having the running backs. But as I say that, you know, I had two plays circled in my notes where I thought Wayne Gallman had terrible reads that ended up being just I know exactly which one you're The one where he about. bounced outside yes. to the left and he went to the edge was terrible. If he just cuts that inside, it's an it's I don't know, 10, 15 yards. Um, and then there was one other one. But so I say that, and then I watch Gallman in depth. Because I remember, get, you know, on the reaction pod, I was giving Gallman so much praise, mostly because I hate Alfred Morris, and I stand by that. He somehow, to me, looked even slower than possible. <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine he would be slower than the broadcast angle. Yes, he's even slower on the All-22 and has literally nothing to his game at this point. But having said that, Gallman... I can see why the Giants don't love him. I don't think he reads the holes as well. He's a really tough runner. I love how he finishes every single run. And I think he's elusive might not be the term, but I think he's really good at creating yards after contact. So maybe less so forcing missed tackles, more so creating yards after contact, which I think Alpha Morris doesn't do any of. Um, But having said that, I can see what they didn't like about that from as far as reading his keys and just like picking the right hole. So ultimately, like... To me, those are the best running backs in the NFL, the Nick Chubbs, the Ezekiel yeah, Elliott. Yeah. Those Cook. are the guys, Dalvin Cook, oh my God. So good. So good at doing Stupid that. good, to be honest. And so I think at times, and I think Freeman actually was doing a pretty good job of that before the injury. I'll say this too. I would love to see Saquon Barkley with these counters, with these yeah, single pullers, true. and those types of plays. I felt like the Giants, now they, they called you know, the counters, the double pullers that aren't counters, single pullers to to each side. Now, I think they only called that once with Shane Lemieux pulling and being the, the kickout guy on the end man on the line of scrimmage. But I feel like they did that more with Alvin Morris and not Wayne Gallman. I think yeah. there were like two plays, maybe one play, where where Wayne Gallman ran power gap, but it was mostly Alfred Morris who, were do, who was doing those counters. 100% correct. 
which is weird because I guess y- you might be saying that you trust Wayne Gallman more in the, the zone and the duo type where yeah. he can pick his hole and then attack, whereas you just think Alfred Morris is going to hit the hole and go, but he doesn't necessarily have burst. Like, that's not his He has his no burst thing whatsoever. whatsoever. <laughs> the Alfred Morris thing is just mind-boggling to me at this point. I have no like, like understanding. I, like I said, I don't disagree with you, but I understand what, why they're doing it, and it all comes Should down to— Should they pull to, up Rod Smith? He played in Garrett's system. Yeah. Like, does Rod Smith have more burst? How about the, Lance Dunbar? Yeah. Is he still around? Can we get Lance Dunbar back? Who else has played for the Cowboys? Is that just what we're doing? I raise you a Darren Cowboys? McFadden. <laughs> yeah, is Darren McFadden? I could bet Darren McFadden can pull, can show more burst on a pull. But I mean, like you're talking about the the two plays we mentioned before with Caden Smith. The holes on those plays were unbelievable. Were I think yeah. I'll say this. I think the play where if Evan Ingram holds his block a little longer. If Saquon Barker's on the field, that could be a touchdown. If he gets to the second level, he's making one man miss, and he's scoring a touchdown. We've seen Saquon Barkley do that. And he might just break the tackle of JPP because he might get there faster. And then on that pull play you mentioned with Caden Smith, where Alfred Morris kind of churned out 11 yards, and churn is the exact way to put what he did there. He just kind of took what was given to him and churned away. Or, I'm sorry, plotted away is probably the better way to describe it. Yeah, probably. Uh, Saquon Barkley might house that play. He really might. There's still a guy he has to make miss, but he's done that before. We've seen it before. So I do agree with you in the sense I just, that— I just don't think it's ridiculous. Dan. No, it's not ridiculous. Yeah. Especially, I, I don't think it's ridiculous because of one major thing. The run blocking has really improved this year. And the defense is better. It's keeping them exactly. in games, and the man. defense is keeping them games and giving them yeah. more chances. So it really is a shame that he tore his ACL this season because I think this could have been his best season with the sense that the run blocking is coming together better than it has with the upgrade that we have to say from Nick Gates— from Spencer Pulley and John Alapio to Nick Gates, at least in the run game. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sitting here with delusions of grandeur saying that they're going to be a, a, like a, a real contender, but at the same time, in this division, they might have well, won a contender the contender in a division. Yeah, 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 like yeah, that. Sure. Like that's kind of that's that's ridiculous to think about, but it, I mean the loss of of Barkley is bigger than just losing a, a talented player. It involves Jones. It involves yeah. so many different things. But we've touched on that, man. But Sterling Shepard, man. Okay, so let's talk skill positions. Yeah. We're gonna wrap up Garrett, and I think. We've, we've said a lot about Garrett in the past, and I think, like I said, even another play I love by him, the the design the design he had on the deep ball to Evan Ingram, first and 10 from the Tampa Bay 45 in, quarter, in the third quarter with 225 left. This is the pass that I think if Jones throws a better ball, it's a touchdown from what I've seen from Ingram, who, by the way, takes a ton of crap, but I thought, I thought Evan Ingram responded in a big way in this game. The plays, he, first of all, the play he made to set up the first touchdown in the red zone, that to me is not a play. Garrett runs this play a lot, and I don't think it's a great play. But Evan Ingram is the about the only player on this roster and many rosters who can get the edge on that play. He turned what should have been a one or two yard gain into a ten yard gain. That got them down to the two. And if you watch this play on all twenty two, it actually was a touchdown. Ingram leaped out and got the ball inside the pylon. But this play was a predetermined read by Jones. And if you watch the play, old Golden Tate is open on a corner route and throws his hands up and kind of throws his hands up to get the ball and then throws his hands up after the play but then kind of celebrates when he sees what Ingram did with it but this predetermined dump to Ingram should have been a two-yard gain and we've seen Garrett run this play a lot but Ingram single-handedly has the burst and that second gear to get the edge and this set up that Gallman touchdown otherwise man if that's if that's the normal play like if that Ingram doesn't make that individual play they're settling for three I've seen this story a million times the Giants and that's going to kill them in this game you can't settle for three so that play and then the play that I was talking about before the one that I really love Jason 
Jason Garrett's play design on was the first and 10 at the Tampa Bay 45 in the third quarter with 225 left. I love this play design to get Ingram open deep. And I guess it's solid anticipation by Jones. I'll say that for the good thing. I don't think the ball was great here, but this is a great catch by Ingram. And I really thought that he did an excellent job responding in this game after taking all the criticism from last week's game and making plays, making two really game-changing plays, this one and the one I just discussed. Absolutely. I mean, just to touch on Garrett, there were a lot of really good play designs. I know we touched on them a little bit earlier. The throwback to Slayton the that throw- Jones overthrew. There was a lot of good adjustments as well. Mm-hmm. They were running slant flat, slant flat, slow go. Yep. And that made the cornerback, I think it was Dean on that play, who Jason Garrett circled and targeted several times. He wanted to attack Jamel Dean, which is also smart. I mean, Jason Garrett, like you said, gets a lot of crap. I, I, I don't think he deserves as much of it, and I do still have some gripes with him. And as for Evan Ingram, yes, he can take a mesh concept, a little drag route, and he can house it. He did it against Tampa Bay last year. I actually really love that about him. He did come up big in this game, and I do believe that was a touchdown. When you review the All-22, it looks like the ball definitely passed over the pylon. And I know we've said this several times on previous episodes, but the difference Sterling Shepard makes is is astronomical for Daniel Jones. The guy is always running precise routes, and you know that Jason Garrett really loves to run that pivot route on some third and short, second and short kind of situations. We've seen Garrett call that play several times. You don't want to establish a trend, but damn, does he not sell that route so well when he when Sterling Shepard goes inside like he's doing a quick little slant, plants on his outside foot and just explodes back towards the outside? He's always creating separation on that play. Yeah, Sterling Shepard is another player who, like Kevin Zeitler for me, I have no interest in trading. I have no interest in moving on from this offseason. I had no interest in moving on from the trade deadline. This is a building block. You need a player like this out there. Shepard was a prospect who a lot of people loved in the draft class when he came out because of what Nick just mentioned, his precise route running, his ability to win early in the route, and his explosiveness after the catch, and his toughness. He's really tough ca- uh, receiver. He makes tough catches, and he doesn't and he takes big hits and holds on to the football and then when you look at guys like i mentioned matt Harmon with reception reception this is a guy who just literally charts how cornerbacks or receivers do against quarterbacks regardless if the ball comes their way and he wins more routes than the vast majority of receivers in the nfl and as you watch the tape it becomes obvious and clear and it's just great to see Shepard, who by the way for the second straight week for whatever you guys want to make of this had the highest grade from pff of all giants offensive players i again pff grade who knows what to say about that i don't think it's that great but he's an excellent player man he is a really really good building block for this franchise absolutely it's actually funny too because you pull up one play and it's the third and seven play with 11 20 left in the second quarter and Shepard runs this route and he sells it very well but he slips and that also helped kind of lead to the sack of Daniel Jones I think Jones was going to be sacked no matter what because of the mistake that Shane Lemieux made but that pivot route man is something to pay attention to because I think they're going to utilize that a lot against Washington a lot of this quick game kind of stuff that people tend to complain about I'm I think it's smart depending on how the pass rushers are taking advantage of this offensive line. And uh, we're going to see more of the spacing routes that we've been seeing where they try to flood the underneath zone. And the Giants have had success with that. But as you said on the last podcast, and I do agree, I think they need to try to take away the risk of throwing into crowded areas in that in those kind of on those kind of plays, especially to Evan Ingram over the middle of the field. And I think that kind of comes on to Daniel Jones making better decisions pre and post snap. 
Yeah, and we'll talk about Jones now. Let's transition there. But before I want to do that, I want to do a couple quick takes. My one quick take is Darius Slayton's open so much, so often. This game, he was open so much, especially down the field, created separation in that regard. And then finally, on that fourth and five play where Jones made, it, really, in my mind, a terrible decision to bail from that pocket. Just too many of those, which we'll talk about. He made an incredible play to come back to that football and then after the catch, get a first down because he caught that ball way behind the stick. So he's a player who, again, building block for sure for me. And then finally, the last thing I want to say is looks like Devontae Freeman's not practicing in this week. So unfortunately, it might look like we might get more of Alfred Morris. I have no interest in that. I'm not going to go back into that now, but this is a bad decision and I don't like it short term or long term and it's disappointing to me and I think it's nepotism and I think Jason Garrett likes him. I think he thinks he's a good guy. He's a good teammate, blah, blah, blah. You can do so much better at the running back position. The Giants just claimed Dante Pettis off waivers. That's the type of move they should be making at every position, running back especially, the deepest talent pool of any position in the entire NFL besides maybe interior defensive line, but probably deeper than that. So hopefully they change their mind on that because I can't afford to, I, my mental health. I can't take it, man. <laughs> I can't see this 41 plotting too much longer. There could be some cronyism there for for sure. Oh, easily. Yeah, but uh, I actually wanted to touch on one more person yeah, before we get into Daniel Jones, and that's Golden Tate, man. There's a lot of weird stuff going on with Golden Tate. You got Joe Judge basically telling him to go home and doesn't really need to go to practice because his wife's tweeting about how he's not getting any targets, and that's why his his stats are down, and he's having, I guess you could say, heated discussion with Daniel Jones and things like that. You could see his body language on the tape isn't exactly great. Like you said, he was open in that one on that one throw to Evan Ingram, he was open in the end zone with his hand in the air. Well, guess what? He was too late out of his break. By the time yeah. Daniel Jones, by the time his he was open, Daniel Jones had already released the football to Evan Ingram. He just doesn't have that same burst. I think he could be valuable to a franchise. Don't get me wrong. Like I think he could help a team uh, in the short to intermediate parts of the field. I don't think he's totally washed, but I, I don't like having a veteran player who's visibly disgruntled and kind of that Jeremy Shockey to Eli Manning uh, kind of effect going on. I hear you. I don't think it's at quite at that level of Jeremy Shockey to Eli Manning. I've, I've gone back and watched some of those early days. Jeremy Shockey was such a douchebag to Eli oh, Manning. Oh, yeah, It's yeah. crazy what, like, he got away That's an with. extreme that example. Was ex- I can't believe the Giants tolerated that for as long as they no, did. No, he, they just loved him so much. I mean, Shockey was what we were talking about. He was about. the face of the franchise. He wasn't the face of, just the face of the franchise. He was literally a two-way tight end. He was an incredible blocker. He wasn't Absolutely. just a receiver. Yeah. He was an unbelievable point-of-attack blocker, and they tolerated it but for a little while. But he was a total douchebag to Eli Manning. For like, I agree with you, but like having a player, I like agree this, with your. Yeah, I was is, gonna say it doesn't seem like something that Joe Judge would really. No, want no, to tolerate I totally was going to say yeah. I agree with your overall premise. I just wanted to say that first, but I totally agree with your overall Dude, premise. <laughs> this is part of why I was fine trading away Odo Beckham Jr. at the time they traded him away. I watched the tape from that year. I saw it on the broadcast angle. I saw it in the locker room because I was in there for a few of those games. He had his own special rules, and then on the sideline, he threw. He was very. The body language was really poor, and it carried over. It was very um, infectious. Infectious for the rest of the receiver group there. And then on the field, when the ball didn't go his way, or he wasn't thrown at the ball placement that he liked, the hands would go up. And overall, that's just not something you want on your football team. The Patriots don't tolerate it. The good teams don't. Tol- Mike Tomlin doesn't tolerate it. The good teams don't tolerate that type of shit. The Ravens don't tolerate that crap. I mean, like, obviously Hollywood Brown said what he said. They kept that in-house, and they're going to get him more targets this week, and I get that. But he probably deserves it. And he probably deserves it. Let's <laughs> be honest. Lamar Jackson needs to read the field better and see because Hollywood Brown is open a lot. Um, and I do, and in some ways, I do kind of 
feel for Tate because I think he is open a little bit more and I think that Jones in my mind is really not that great at reading the defense and seeing the whole field and I think still a lot of Daniel Jones's game at this point is just going with his pre-snap read it happens so often when you watch the tape and you really focus in on what he's doing it's still a lot of it um I think there's times in this game especially where he didn't do that which is great because when you play him single high he does a better job of taking advantage of those shots because he reads it better I think I just, it's I also he trusts one-on-one he and trusts he'll, one-on-one. He'll, he'll throw yeah. the ball up to you right he trusts one-on-one and now his ball placement was atrocious in this game that's the only Terrible. way to describe it um it was like literally Haskins level bad but at the same time he reads it better in that way. So again, for Tate, I, I somewhat feel for him because he's not like he'd love to be in a Chiefs offense right now, or you know, <laughs> play for even Kyler Murray. Or he something had his like bags that. packed or the trade deadline. He's like, shit me yeah. out of town, guys. He wanted, he wanted out. I mean, he doesn't want to play for a team that's not a that's a conservative ball offense. That you know, and I get that. He still feels like he has a lot he can give, but at the same time, I agree with your your entire point. Your point entirely, I should say that they don't need players like this on this franchise. He's also used to playing with Russell Wilson and Matt Stafford, yep. like two very good quarterbacks, and he's going to a second-year quarterback in his second system who seems to be struggling right now. So yep. there's definitely a lot of frustration there. I just don't want this to bleed into the locker yep. room. I don't want any kind of problem like like that happening, and I do trust this coaching staff to kind of squash that kind of stuff. I do too. I That, that could be a really good point of where Joe Judge stands out as a plus as a coach. If he can squash this, if he can get this back under control because it doesn't look like they're going to trade. Well, they obviously can't trade him at this point. They might release him, but I don't think based on the contract details that he's going to get released. We'll see what happens there. It depends if he really – I mean, he could push for it. If he starts to go off and do things to force his release, he can do it. I mean, we've seen players do that in the past, and it wouldn't be the first time. I mean, essentially that's what Antonio Brown did. It didn't end in a release. It ended in a trade, but – as they entered that offseason, the Steelers had no choice but to trade him. So the, Then uh, he forced himself out of the Raiders by releasing yeah. <laughs> And, and the, the, these Antonio Brown feel-good stories that I'm reading from, obviously, oh, some God. of you guys know I'm an editor for CBS, so you know we covered the NFL cycle. There's There were two stories my boys at CBS and my writers wrote today, these feel-good Brown stories, and I'm just reading them thinking, are we really doing feel-good stories about this guy? Have you read what he's done off the field? Like This is a really bad human being. He's I'm not saying, a good guy. Like I think this guy is one of the worst human beings that I've seen in the National Football League in a long time when you read the stuff take a take a look at his cases and take a look at some of the stuff he's done he's a bad human so i don't buy any of the feel-good stuff and i am not down for his second chance but point is like nick said giants don't need players like that on this team absolutely not and it's funny because we might be seeing him catch some touchdowns on sunday night football Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, he's they, with, with the they're injuries gonna they have, him. they're going to use him. I mean, oh, Brady, yes. the Brady connection with him was like night. It happened right away. If you have him Patriots. in fantasy and and you and you are a little hesitant, I would I would fire him up. <sighs> I had him and I dropped him because I needed to keep some other player. But I don't care. I don't want him on my team. It's bad for the it's bad for the personnel. <laughs> it's bringing down the morale. Yeah, it's bringing down the morale of the team. <laughs> I don't my my roster is that. But but I better cut off because I don't want to talk fantasy. You know, it could lead to another one star review. I know we talked for two hundred thirteen seconds about Wisconsin football and led to a one star review. To whoever you are, I can't believe you counted. <laughs> yeah, I oh I went back and I counted how long we talked about that. But let's go on to Daniel Jones. Let's talk about Daniel Jones. So. The Jones discussion, where do you want to start this one? I'll let you I'll give you the floor, Nick. Honestly, there's really not much well, there's a lot to be said about these individual plays, what he did, the mistakes that he made pre and post snap, how he read things, but this was uncharacteristic from a ball placement standpoint. Let's start there. Yeah. Because you and I, I think, have been 
pretty positive about how we feel Daniel Jones' accuracy is, how he utilizes touch, and how mm-hmm. he doesn't really miss many throws. He's, he's pretty good with those kind of things. But in this game, I felt like ball placement, it was so evident that it was just erratic. And I, I tried looking at his, his footwork. I think there were a couple plays where his feet weren't angled I feel like to where they should have been on some of those deep sideline throws, his hips weren't really angled all that well. I felt like he had a little bit more happy feet, wasn't really staying in the pocket like we said in some of the uh, in, in the last podcast. And that to me, man, these these are little things that I hope they're not going to become habitual. These are habits that he could be forming that he may be just jittery because he doesn't trust the offensive line because he might be a little shell-shocked and then on Monday Night Football was the pressure too much for this kid I didn't necessarily ever peg him that way in the past but this game man there were a lot of throws a lot of easy reads a lot of opportunities for Daniel Jones to seize and he really didn't do a great job doing that on the whole and we're not necessarily used to seeing that we kind of have made a lot of excuses to why or for Daniel Jones in the past that I felt like were fair like the offensive line and the receivers. You got Damian Ratley, CJ Board running 50 plus routes for you. <laughs> I think those are fair excuses, but in this game, the Giants could have, the Giants would have won this game if Daniel Jones was Daniel Jones of any other week this season. And that is an indictment on the quarterback. It leads to questions about him as the future. I'm not quite, I'm not off the bandwagon of Daniel Jones right now, but he needs to bounce back and he needs to to show more consistency because what happened on Monday night is inexcusable from from a franchise quarterback and even from a even from a second-year quarterback, because, again, like it wasn't necessarily just mental. There were so many mistakes by Daniel Jones that led to this loss. And the ball placement thing, like why did your accuracy go awry? We need Shaplinski to definitely be in his ear, the quarterback's coach, to assist him in this development and to kind of stabilize him, calm him down, and get him back on track. I trust Joe Judge put a nice staff together. Now we need to see that from the quarterback coach. Yeah, I think you made a lot of excellent points. I want to start with the two things that you broke down that have been consistently in the other direction until this game and then try to unpack why that happens. The first one would be what you said about him kind of was the moment too big for him on Monday Football. I would lean toward no just based on everything we've seen from Jones, and I think that was part of what Dave Gettleman fell in full bloom and John Marin because remember when they make a decision like that taking a quarterback at six overall especially a quarterback who let's be quite frank on honest a lot of the draft community had a second round grade on I mean some even worse like some very respectable draft pundits yeah had worse and then some had first round grades I want to be clear that a lot of people did have back end first round grades and some had some people felt like it was okay at 17 a little bit of a reach but okay at 17 and then a lot had back end first grades too we didn't me and Nick both had mid twos um, I think I had him at 42 overall. With that final. said, I think I would have been fine with taking him at 17. Uh, uh, I mean, I was ultimately, it's so hard to say, like I was yeah. ultimately fine with taking him at six. I have a different opinion on quarterbacks, which is why we'll get to this in the offseason, but it's going to be one of the main reasons why I'm open to and leaning toward drafting a quarterback this offseason. Yeah, we'll I have get a all very different opinion on, what, on that yeah. position and what you should be doing, and it's why I was fine taking a quarterback at six, even someone like Daniel Jones, who was a bit of a stretch in that I, sense. It was really hard for, for me to accept the fact that the Josh But I didn't want to pass on Josh, Josh Allen. Allen. Exactly. Yes. I was not fine with it because of what the, what they yes. missed out on. But ultimately, I was kind of fine on it because I kind of felt like Denver was going to take Daniel Jones if the Giants didn't. And or Washington. 
I didn't think Washington would. I thought really? that Dan Schneider was going to make that decision, and he had a he was Haskins went to his son's high school, and there was that connection there in the okay. DC area. I thought he was Haskins all the way. Jay I know Gr- Gruden, I Gruden wanted, yeah, I know Gruden Jones, wanted, but yeah. Snyder makes the decisions. There. Uh, obviously, that's that type of franchise. Um, <laughs> but I did think De- Denver might have done it. Denver really liked Jones, and there's st- again there's stuff to like about Jones, so we're going to get to that. So, but one of the things that the Gettleman liked, and that teams like I'm sure the Broncos liked, and anyone who was interested in Jones and had a first round grade on Jones is that he. The moment's never too big for him. He doesn't throw an interception and let that get to him. He doesn't let him rattle him. He moves on to the next play, kind of like Eli Manning did. And he can handle the media really well, all those things. In this game, that wasn't the case. I think that is more likely to be a one-off for Jones. I really do believe that. Um, I think that is based on everything we've seen so far. I think, you know, he faced a lot of pressure in this game. And by pressure, I don't mean like playing on Monday Night Football. I mean blitzing they blitzed the hell out of him in this game and it got to him he started to get rattled he started to rush his throwing motion i think i think he started to rush his footwork in the pocket and i think it led to some really really off place off place throws i i agree with that but i I also feel like the ball like even from the first snap It, it just didn't look it didn't look like the daniel jones we're used to seeing yeah the ball that he threw to the 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 offsides that he just totally just threw a duck out of <laughs> under yeah, through to start the second duck. quarter yeah, yeah. Like, that one was scary as hell and that i remember a throw he made like that against uh the eagles last season where he completely underthrew shepherd um he's had a few of those i and so i want to then get to the second thing you mentioned the ball placement i think that for me with that like one of the things that really made me excited about jones last season was that when I watch a lot of young quarterbacks in the NFL, they miss a lot of open throws. And that was something that Daniel Jones never did because, at least not last season, he almost never missed open throws until the weather got cold and he missed a few, but he almost never missed open throws because his upper upper body mechanics were great. And I thought Shermer did an excellent job kind of improving his footwork. And that's something you got to work on with a quarterback like this every day, especially when he had the tape that he did at Duke, which was inconsistent footwork, to say the least, especially when throwing to his left, which he tends to drift. Now, with that said, those are just two things that can make him, in my mind, a pretty passable quarterback, someone who has good ball placement and doesn't get rattled by big moments. But there's so many more things that go into playing quarterback. And the most important thing of all, well, some would argue it's arm talent. I think that while he doesn't have the best arm strength, he actually has pretty good arm talent. Like you said, he does a good job of changing trajectory on some of his passes, the Deion Lewis touchdown pass. Nice touch. Throws an anticipation. He throws, well, the anticipation stuff, I think he can do at times. Yes, I agree. Throws an anticipation. I just don't think he reads things quick enough. But that's a whole. I guess that's a whole different bucket. But I'll get to that in one second. But the things I like, yes, ball placement and doesn't get rattled by the moment, and his athleticism. That's obviously a good trait of his. Like we have to accept that. Um, And and as far as the arm talent goes, it's it's pretty good. But it's not otherworldly. It's not Justin Herbert arm talent. It's not Kyler Murray arm talent. It's not this kid Zach Wilson arm talent (laughs) I'm going to talk about a lot. It's not Trevor Lawrence arm talent, you know? It may not even be Justin Fields arm talent if we're going to be completely honest with the situation. That was part of the knock on Daniel Jones. So when you have kind of a middling arm talent, you need to really dominate. And I've said this from the start with Jones, the post-snap processing. Because guess what? In the NFL, this ain't Duke anymore, Okay. You're not going to be able to just rely on what you see before the snap. 
This is not, defenses know that that's what you want to do. If defenses are not going to make it that easy for you. So like that play with Tate, like you said, like I agree the ball was out of Jones's hand, but if Jones reads that a little differently from the immediate snap, he had some time in that pocket on that play. And if he knows that corner route's going to come open, he can put the ball in a spot like he did to Tate on the final touchdown of the drive. And that might be a touchdown honestly and there's multiple plays like this in this in throughout jones's career where he's just not reading the defense after snap he's just simply going with his pre-snap read and locking onto there and and this is what dan orlovsky broke down about him last season and i thought the breakdown was a little bit unfair but as i watch more jones it becomes clear and clearer that it's a pretty fair analysis he really is an a plus b kind of post-snap reader he has his pre-snap read that's a that's plan a and then he has a plan b but it's like if those two things are taken away from him he really the way he thinks about the my my mind it's kind of the way he processes defense and his whole his whole style for playing the position it's kind of like i'm going to do this or i'm going to do that it's not like i'm going to take the snap i'm going to see what the defense then shows me and completely adjust my mindset and go somewhere else based on now what i'm seeing that ability to 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 really take in a lot of information yes. process it really quickly and then react yes. I, I actually think that is a very fair take yeah of daniel jones and i ultimately think that based on the limitations with his arm talent combined with sloppy footwork still on tape what i notice he still burps the baby a lot that was a problem for him as a rookie i still see it a lot not too much it's not crazy but you have to, if you have those limitations in my mind and if you throw the third thing in which is my biggest concern right now with Darren jones which is that he just really does a really poor job of pocket management i think that he doesn't shuffle his feet and reset i think he's looking to escape way too soon in spots where it makes no sense to escape like the pocket is totally fine it's clean it's clear you you need to reshuffle your feet you need to reset your feet you may need to take a two step back so you may need to step back to your right a step back or i'm sorry step back and once you're right or step back and once you're left basically what tom brady does to be what he is and, and drew Brees. But if all those things are still concerns and you're a mediocre or really what he is at this point, a poor post-snap processor, because that's what he is. He's not a good post-snap processor. He's just purely going with – and the way he thinks of it, like you said, like I think what you said is kind of – I don't know if it's innate in these quarterbacks. I don't know if it can be learned. Like I'm, My concern is that can this really be improved? I, I, I think it could with coaching and experience, as Afkana said before. I'm not going to say it can't uh, with those – two specific things and man even the passes that he completed in this game they were off target yeah a lot of them and sterling Shepard had to make catches behind his back there was the second and 10 330 left in the second quarter if he hits him in stride there sterling Shepard picks up an extra 10 yards possibly on that little slant route that deep slant route and there were plenty of things like that but i think that orlovsky breakdown that you just mentioned i think it's fair but i'm not willing to just throw it away just yet i do think that you can develop it, and i do believe that he is a smart kid i do yes I, I i also think that he could do a much better job with all of the post-snap analysis and like just take the darius slayton miss for example the interception you see you're looking towards the middle of the field and you see the safety dart you should automatically know yeah, you have exactly. a one-on-one you have on a one-on-one one on the left side that's yes. the type of stuff i'm talking about that's my that's exactly you I just would, described it perfectly i would love to know what he's being told before and after these things by the coaches i re- i really would now i'm not like indicting the coaching staff whatsoever i'm sure they're doing an excellent job but i'm wondering if they are they're seeing something else and they're trying to attack something else specific that is in daniel jones's mind but those are the types of things that lead me to think yes you need to do a much better job once you see that safety rotate you know you have a one-on-one that should be your first read you need to look that direction and you need to 
take advantage of a mismatch, which Darius Slayton versus Jamel Dean one-on-one coverage is a mismatch. Even if Jamel Dean didn't blow that coverage, it's a mismatch. Yeah, yeah. Especially, you know Slayton's more than likely going to win. And that was one-on-one. And also, I want to say Dean was like, his pre-snap leverage was about... Terrible. Like Like eight eight yards off the ball. Eight yards off with a slight tilt inside. inside, You know Slayton's going to go outside of that and... Try to take advantage. And, and that's something that- you also have to see, the, the, where the cornerbacks light up and his leverage. But for me, all that, while I do agree with you, he's a smart kid, so that would lead me to believe it can be improved. What concerns me, and I'm going to see if I can articulate this better because I don't think I did a great job of articulating it just there on that first first analysis of this. I think part of it is the process is the issue here. I think the way that he thinks about how to play the position. I think you I think you articulated it very well, to be honest. But I think you think of it as case, it's, an, it's an A- or B situation, like you said, right? Instead of kind of reacting. He doesn't yes. have the reactionary quickness to be like, oh, it's not A or B, it's actually C, so now let me execute that. But like, that. have you ever yes. tried to like, I'm trying to think of a good example in your life. Like, have you ever tried to change your shot in basketball? You have a jump shot, you've been shooting it your whole life, but somebody shows you the right way to shoot, but then you try to change your jump shot and you're not picking it up right and you kind of just end up reverting back to the way you knew. That makes more shots, more go in because you developed a certain way and you got used to it. But you're not reaching your potential. But you're not, it's not only that you're reaching, not reaching your potential, you're, well, yeah, in that sense, you're not reaching your potential, but also you can't get to that point where you're doing it the right way because you just can't redo it from scratch. Your mind is too, your muscle reflexes are too much. Your mind has gone in that direction. I'm just not sure he's going to ever change the way he sees the field in that sense. I just don't know too many quarterbacks who, I don't know too many quarterbacks. I don't study enough quarterbacks to know if they have done this or they haven't done this, to be honest, but I know that what he did at Duke is what he put on film is what he's doing now and so i know that he it hasn't improved yet and i know that this guy in my mind does not have the arm talent to win if this is the way he processes defenses it's my personal opinion like he can you know like you can put a great team around him maybe you can turn him into a Tannehill, and like just like you said the coaching can get better and there's going to be better players around him so like his first is a and b options will work you know even if the defense shows him something he doesn't see but just to not be able to realize some of the things that he has at his disposal based on how things change post snap like you mentioned on that slight on that slate and route those little things to know that you have that it's troubling to me it's extremely troubling to me with daniel jones and that doesn't even get into you know the the darnold type stuff with him bailing too early from pockets and then his footwork when he moves to his left that's definitely an issue as well that i think we touched on it i guess enough you could say on the last podcast but that's absolutely an issue you you need to be able to i know it's weird to say because the giants tackles have been so bad but you need to be able to have some sort of confidence in your offensive line to stay within the timing and the rhythm of the play Mm -hmm. you don't want to always kind of play this okay we're just going to extemporize and wing it Mm -hmm. and hopefully one of my receivers comes open and credit to Sterling Shepard and Darius Slayton for doing that on that on that drive despite how ugly this game was I think a very positive thing can be taken away from the fact that the Giants were put into a similar position that they found themselves in all year and this time they actually punched the ball into the end zone and they actually scored now granted they needed eight points instead of six or four or what have you that's the issue. They didn't get the two-point conversion, which was also on Daniel Jones. All on Daniel Jones. Yes, yes. And I know the pass interference, I get it. Yeah, he ran into it early. But look, I think with the flag being thrown, I think it's hard to pick it up. But like, I'm totally fine with that not being called. Because that's on Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones waited for Deion Lewis to turn around 
and that made him kind of burp the baby and then he released it once he sees Deion Lewis's eyes but you know the route you know Deion Lewis you know where he's going you fire that football in you practice that all day when you guys guys best guess what just so you you all know this and I'm sure most of you are aware of this when there's only one two-point conversion play in a single game it means that play was practiced like 25 times and it's been it's well developed and well repped out because they they knew they had when you have to get to your second or third two-point conversion then you can start to say maybe they don't have as much experience with the play they don't have as much reps with it but that play has been worked on way too many times for daniel jones to burp the baby to take that second hitch and to wait to make that throw absolutely man it's hard and even then even if you do do all of that and you make those mistakes as a quarterback you could still throw a better ball there to the pylon and he could still run under it for the touchdown yes or for the two-point conversion sorry yeah i mean it was the excellent play call against man coverage it totally put Antoine Winfield Jr. into a really precarious situation, crossing the formation yeah. since he was like outside the hash. He had so far to cover and he had a bunch of routes coming at him. So there was so much traffic and credit so to him. Traffic. What an athlete yeah. to cover that ground. But even with him doing a really good job covering the ground, it should have been a two-point conversion. Easy. But here we are. Another loss. Yep. And so it is what it is on the offensive side of the ball. But again, if you're asking me why why is my confidence level that daniel jones be a quarterback at a two in five years that's 2025 at this point a two and why am i ready to start turning the page this offseason when they again have a top traffic a lot of the reasons are jones's development and where i see his ceiling at this point unfortunately but a lot of them are also the importance of the quarterback position and what i believe helps you win i mean you see what the arizona cardinals did they decided instead of looking at the tape of rosen and saying you know we have some stuff to work with here. We can improve him. Yeah, uh, the footwork's bad. I'm using Jones as the example. I'm not basing this on Rosen. I'm not studied his all 22 with the Cardinals. But like, not not saying things like, yeah, the footwork to the left is bad. Yeah, he's escaping pockets too early. Yeah, the post-snap processing isn't really improving. Instead of saying, but it will improve. And, you know, we can make him better. We'll put all the talent around him. They took a chance on a really talented thrower who they believed in. And Kyler Murray has turned that franchise around already. They're already competing and they're going to compete for the division. They might compete for the Super Bowl potentially. I don't know if they're ready for that yet, especially with the Chandler Jones injury, but they're on their way because of Kyler Murray. And if the Giants have that kind of opportunity this offseason with one of these quarterbacks, it's going to be really tough for me not to want to take that opportunity. Everything needs to be considered. And I'm sure we're going to get into this in subsequent podcasts. Yes, but as, but as of go. right now, we <laughs> this has been a long podcast on this Giants offense, and yes. uh, and uh, I mean we we need to see Jones be better. It's that Frank. Hopefully, the offensive mm-hmm. line can continue doing what they're doing, and hopefully, Sterling Shepard stays healthy. And that's the final thing I would say. I mean, ultimately, the offensive line played a hell of a game, so that's um, not good for Jones. Like you can't be bailing from pockets when your line's playing well, but. Again, like you said, there's still a long way to go. We'll see what happens here. But thank you to, again to everyone tuning into the Big Blue Banter podcast. This one went a lot longer than we expected. We had a lot to talk about with the offense. Stay tuned. Jump in the next one. Please make sure you download, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you're the Kwame Zillow, the one guy who gave us a recent one-star <laughs> review, guess what? I Even if you're listening, I don't care. I don't care if we lose you as a listener. You've already done enough damage by giving us this one star. You're not a friend of ours. You're not a friend of the show. But in all seriousness, everyone else who are fans of the show, thank you again for tuning in. And remember, follow us on Instagram at mybigbluebanter. And there's going to be a special live Q&A that me and Nick are hosting this Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern. That's right. A special live 
Q&A this Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Locker Room app. I have already tweeted it. It's pinned in my profile on Twitter. I will be tweeting out the link again. You need to download the app. And then once you get on the app, it's a really cool thing. It's You join this locker room. It's going to call, be called State of the Giants. Me and Nick will be the host in the locker room. We will be talking into the phone, into the into our phones, into the app. And then you will hit this button that asks you to grab the mic. And we will then give you the mic. And you will talk into your phone your question. We'll take back the mic. We'll answer it. There might be some back and forth. It's going to be really awesome. So we hope all of you guys jump in for that. And for those of you who can't make it, send your questions in anyway. And we're going to be end up putting the recording of that live Q&A on our podcast page. So you'll be able to listen to it back if you don't, if you can't attend it then as well. So again, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Thank you to all you who gave us those five-star reviews on iTunes. That really helps us grow. So once again, as I like to end this bad boy, go Giants.